Um, our reading for this evening is from Philippians. I'm going to read from Philippians 2, reading from verse 1, um, if you have a Bible handy or uh, if you just want to watch up on the screen. So Philippians 2 from verse 1, and it reads like this. So, ah, sorry Jim, I've just realised I'm going to read from a different version, so apologies for people on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV, so my apologies if it's a little bit different than what's on the screen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray that God will add his blessing to this reading from his word. Back in late 2013, two American football players, Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin of the Miami Dolphins, had every reason to be teammates and friends, but they were not. Incognito harassed and bullied Martin. He called him a racial slur in a voicemail that was played by every media outlet in the country. He threatened to kill him and his family. Incognito claimed all of this was just locker room talk. He said it was just the way that guys talk to one another in the National Football League. Martin, it seems, hadn't got that memo. He left the team. And the position he had worked so hard for, citing emotional issues and fearing for his life. Though we don't know all the details, the investigation by the governing body of American football found that Martin had some culpability as well. He was far too passive in dealing with Incognito's threatening behaviour. As a teammate, the report suggested, he should have expressed how troubling Incognito's threats were to him. These two men had many more reasons to be friends and to get along than to have a toxic relationship. They were both American football players. They were both on the same team. They both had the same coach. Both played the same position, that of offensive lineman. Both were part of the starting lineup. They weren't substitutes. Both wanted to win. Both were big guys. Both were millionaires. Yet somewhere along the way, one or both of them forgot that they played for the same team and began to treat the other like a New England Patriot or a Buffalo Bill or a New York Jet. They forgot the opposition was in another city. They forgot the opposition was on another team. 
As we come to chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is acutely aware of issues of rivalry and division within the church. Certainly the issues are not as toxic as Incognito and Martin, but they are there. And Paul's key message to the Philippians in these verses that we've read is that because of their salvation in Christ and our fellowship through the Holy Spirit, we should unite by imitating the love and humility of Christ. So Paul sets out to encourage the Philippian church to come together in unity. And we're going to trace his argument through three steps this evening. Firstly, is that they should fully grasp and understand their faith. Refocus and recenter themselves on Father, Son, and Spirit. Secondly, that because we have the center of our faith in common, we should live in unity. And thirdly, that this unity is not just theoretical, but it's practical. In choosing to imitate Christ's example of humility and to put others before ourselves. So the first of those, really grasping and understanding our faith, refocusing, recentering ourselves on Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul begins in verse 1 of our reading this evening by asking the Philippian church to consider the meaning of their faith. Not just the meaning in a theoretical sense, but the true heart of their relationship with Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. A major theme throughout this letter of Paul to the Philippians is rejoicing and joy. And I think Paul intends this reality of our faith to be a reason for rejoicing. I don't believe Paul is doubting the Philippians or the genuineness of their faith. Rather, by using what we read here in verse 1 as conditional statements, this cause and effect, he's seeking to provoke the Philippians to reflect on whether these qualities whether this experience is evident in their lives and to recognize that then there must be an effect. And we ask the same question of ourselves. Do we truly grasp and do we rejoice in what we have in being in Christ? I think it's all too easy to forget. It's all too easy to fall into a dry, lifeless, theoretical version of our faith where we know all the words and ideas in our heads, we go through all the right motions, but that somehow it gets detached from our hearts. When we get caught in the busyness of life, with work, with study, with friends, with family, with church commitments, we can forget the reason that we do it. In this opening verse, Paul provokes the Philippians to reflect on their faith, and he does it in the form of the Trinity. We can compare the shape of verse 1 to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which we use as our benediction, the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks of encouragement in Christ, comfort from love of God, participation in the Spirit. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's encouraging us to reflect on and rejoice in the full, complete trinity in our experience of our faith. In Christ, we experience the loving concern which has reached out to us in our need, in our sinful state, that was unwilling to leave us in our need 
and which gently invites and encourages us into a new life. In the love of the Father, we have found our deep consolation, the voice that speaks to our sorrows, the hand that touches our hurts. And these experiences of the Son and the Father have come to us through the Holy Spirit, who is himself the bond of fellowship among the Trinity and among us as Christians. And Paul tells us that this encounter with the three aspects of God should not only affect our head, but should affect our heart. In verse 1, Paul completes his list by asking after, in the ESV, affection and sympathy. The NIV says, if there is any tenderness and compassion. Perhaps the King James Version actually has this closest. It refers to any bowels and mercies. And the Greek certainly implies something deep within us, within our heart, within our gut. So this experience of grace in Christ, love of God, fellowship of the Spirit, should affect us on the inside, in affection, in heart, and right in our gut. And so should become action on the outside, in sympathy, in compassion, in mercy. And so this gathering of head and heart and hands should be the impact of our faith. And so we should center ourselves again. We should refocus on the faith, the salvation, the love and fellowship that we have through Christ. And don't we rejoice? Don't we feel encouragement and joy as we refocus our faith? So what does Paul tell us should be then the natural outpouring of this refocusing, of this realignment? That comes on to our second point, that because we have this center of our faith in common, we should live in unity. As Paul says in verse 2, we should have the same mind, the same love, that we should be in full accord. And Paul gives us something of the context for the Philippian church elsewhere in his letter. In chapter 1, 15 to 17, Paul speaks of some preaching Christ out of envy or rivalry. In chapter 4 and verse 2, some form of disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche are somehow preventing them from working together for the Lord. Paul is not arguing for some drab intellectual uniformity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Paul in Ephesians 4 talks of the diversity of callings and gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, he writes of how all the aspects of the church, all the individuals with their unique abilities, gifts, passions, calling, all come together to form one fully functioning body that suffers if all the parts are not well and functioning. I have a friend of mine who used to be in the Ulster Orchestra. Sometimes I would go along to hear the orchestra, all the different parts, strings, woodwind, brass, percussion, rhythm, all play and contributing their own part to the overall piece of music. If any of you have ever been to an orchestra concert or been in an orchestra, you'll know that the first thing that musicians do when they take the stage is tune their instruments. But have you ever noticed how it's done? Most orchestras tune to the oboe. Well, 
Why the oboe, you might ask? Unlike other instruments, an oboe cannot tune. Where brass instruments and other woodwinds pull out something out to change the intonation, or stringed instruments have pegs at the top to pull or loosen or tighten strings to change the pitch, the oboes really cannot be tuned as an instrument in themselves. They are constant. The note of an oboe is also largely not affected by changes in environment, in temperature or humidity. So the pitch will stay the same during rehearsal and in the concert. The orchestra sections don't look to each other for a note and then argue over which one is right or tune to the person sitting beside them in some kind of musical Chinese whispers. We don't have the brass instrument saying, we like this tuning, and the woodwind saying, we like this one, and the string saying, nah, you're both wrong. This one's right. An orchestra, all tuned to the same oboe, are automatically in tune with each other. They are of one accord. They have unity by being tuned to one standard, that of the oboe. Not only do all the players have instruments tuned to the one standard, but they also have one conductor. One person who leads the speed and the crescendo and the quietening, the starts and the stops. In many ways, is that not an image of Christian unity? To be all so attuned to the one standard, salvation in Jesus Christ, following the one conductor, the Holy Spirit, so that we are all in tune with each other, all playing together. This is what Jesus himself prays for us in John 17 and 20. In praying for all believers, Jesus prayed that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 23 of the same chapter, he prays that they may become perfectly one. Do you get the import of that? Jesus prayed that we would have the same unity the oneness, the same purpose in the way that he had with his own father. But are we really that in our churches today? Does the fact that we are all rooted in the one salvation through Christ, the encouragement and joy that we have of being in Christ, the fellowship with one spirit really translate into unity? I'm not sure any of us could really argue that case. At the last count, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, estimated 45,000 denominations in 2014. And research indicates over 40 mainstreams of belief in the Christian church. Recent years have probably seen more commission investigations in our own denomination of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland than ever before. Breakdown in relationships between ministers, Kirk Sessions and congregations. And don't we hear of church divisions over styles of music and whether we use the hymn book and what version of the Bible we read from. But underneath these more overt divisions and disunity in our churches, are there more personal divisions? With brothers and sisters in Christ hurt by one another? And do we feel those hurts and disunity too? Have we been hurt by what someone has said to us? Or by not giving us our place? Taking a decision without discussing with us? 
Do we feel aggrieved that someone else is getting an opportunity to use their gifts? Perhaps the same gift we have, getting an opportunity that we are not. Do we feel that some people are elevated, given priority, almost having celebrity status in our congregation, and we feel like we're being ignored? But do we also cause those hurts? Do we fail to have empathy, to take time to properly understand another's point of view? Do we do things without considering each other? Paul in verses 3 and 4 outlines the source of this danger, that we naturally look to our own self-interests. That as sinners, our instinct is to put ourselves first, to ensure that we get our recognition and our place. That people consider us, that we get our opportunity, our rights, our individuality. So how can we overcome this disunity? The self-interest. What can we do to live out unity in practice in our families, in our fellowships, in our congregations? The unity that Christ prayed for us? Well, Paul has a practical and I think rather uncompromising response that is deeply countercultural. In the end of verse 3 and into verse 4 of Philippians 2, he says, count others more significant than ourselves. Look to their interests. I think Paul is a realist. He doesn't say to have no ambition. He doesn't say to have no drive to follow. He doesn't say to have no passion. He does not want us, I don't think, to be timid or passive. But if you read again verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The key is to take the same level of concern that we have for our own interests and apply it to the interests of others. But such radical love is rare. Later in chapter 2, Paul points to the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. But first and foremost, Paul points to Jesus, the supreme reality of Jesus. Verse 5 in the ESV reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I think I actually prefer the NIV translation here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And if we went on and we studied on through verses 5 through 11, we have this passage that's often known as the hymn of Christ that tells us something of that servanthood of Jesus Christ. I would suggest that that humility of Christ, that servanthood, is demonstrated quite succinctly in another part of the Bible. Luke 22 and verse 42. In the Garden of Gethsemane, withdrawing to pray, facing the toughest and last 24 hours of his life, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Is that not the ultimate example between personal ambition and God's will? That Christ was willing to choose God and obedience, to choose mankind, to choose us over himself. 
Would we be willing to lay aside our own self-interests, our own ambitions to consider others better than ourselves, to look to the interests of others so as to follow in Christ's example? I suppose we can't really look at these verses and discuss unity without asking the question, why? Why do we need to bother with unity? Is it just something that keeps us all happy within our church, within our fellowship? If we dip into the wider context of the Philippian church and where Paul goes later in chapter 2, I would suggest perhaps in his whole book, he asks the question, Again, if we're looking at this question, why bother, why have unity? He says, we are all unified by encouragement to new life in Christ, by the love of the Father, by the common bond of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself prayed that for us. And we have some real practical challenges to live this out, this unity, and how we exercise humility and put others first. This may involve some difficult decisions. It may involve some tough conversations may involve some honest reality, some confession, maybe even some forgiveness. But Paul has a clear understanding as to the why, why we must seek unity. In chapter 1 and 27, Paul tells the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. In chapter 2 and 14, he talks of them shining as lights to the world holding out the word of life in a crooked and twisted generation. The Philippian church was in a society hostile to the word of God. There were many challenges in Philippian society. Money, wealth, power, fame, and plenty of pagan gods. Not forgetting Caesar himself offering his own kind of salvation. And in our context... Do we see a society that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith? When we see equal rights applied in a way that saw Asher's Bakery in court, but in the very same week let Stephen Fry rail against God on TV, calling him capricious, mean-minded, stupid, evil, monstrous, a maniac? We see the Education Secretary, Nicky Morgan, espousing a new curriculum, the teaching of British values, which includes the acceptance of Islam, of homosexual practice, and of other traits considered to be indicative of a modern British society. And yet many of us know very well Crown Jesus Ministries, doing evangelistic work in schools, work in assemblies, and they are receiving complaints about teaching Christian religion in schools. I think we also see the core of Christian belief under attack in society in many more subtle ways. The idol of money, consumerism and success. To quote the movie Fight Club, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need. We have a culture that goes to court to sue rather than showing forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. We have our television programs that often promote the strong and those that meet aggression with aggression rather than turning the other cheek. And don't we see that play out in local, national and international contexts? 
These are some of the ways in which we today live in a hostile society. These are some of the gods that claim to offer salvation and life. But as we know, the salvation offered by Christ is quite different and is established on an altogether different view of the world. It was up to the church at Philippi to work out how to live for Christ in a hostile and perilous society. It is up to us as the Christian community today to work out what that looks like for us. We as Christians need to be lights to the world, to people that are desperately in need of Christ, whether they see it or not. And how can we do this? Well, we turn to John again. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus teaches that our humility and our unity, our mutual love, would be one of the strongest possible arguments for the gospel. We began this evening talking about how Richie Incognito and James Martin had more reasons to be teammates and friends than not. In the same way, we have many more reasons to honor one another and live in unity than to dishonor one another. Allow me to play with the sporting analogy. We have the same owner. We have the same father cheering us on from the stands. We have the same Savior who scouted us and forgave us. We have the same spirit within. We have the same playbook. We have the same purpose and we have the same destiny when this life is over. So let's join in unity. Not just here, throughout our congregations and with all Christians. Let us rejoice in the faith that we have in Christ, in the Father and in the Spirit. Let's unite with the same mind and the same love. Let us lay aside selfish ambition and imitate the selfless humility of Christ. And let us step forward together to the same purpose, to glorify Christ, to share the good news of the great gospel we have within us, and to be lights to the world that so much needs Christ. Let's pray. As we come to spend some time in prayer and in song and in response. Lord God, we pray that you will reignite in us a fire for the gospel of Christ. That you will reignite in us an amazement at the glorious grace that we have received. For that should be our unity. That we all have the same faith. That we are all the same before God through Jesus Christ.
as we reflect, can we spend some time thinking about our unity and our service? Do we need to confess to people and to God because we have marginalized others? Because we have put them down or somehow lorded power or position or even personality over them? Are there people that we need to forgive because we have been on the receiving end of the same? Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us humble. Lord God, we pray for servant hearts. We pray, God, that you will work in our lives to take away the selfish ambition. You will work in our lives to make us willing servants. Willing servants to others and ultimately to you.